What is going on? Thank you so much for joining me here today on The Shalene Show. My name is Shalene Johnson. If you've been listening for any length of time, you know that the last several years, gosh, I think now it's going on four years, my husband and I have been documenting our journey with my father-in-law, his father, Bob, who has Alzheimer's. And many of you have related to the content, whether you have a parent who's got Alzheimer's or dementia or just a parent who's aging. So many people are now facing the reality that you might have to take care of your parents or a loved one. And it's hard. It's really hard. I'm a researcher. I've had the good fortune of having some incredible experts on the show. I've spent a small fortune on books trying to understand this process, but yet there's still so many things that Brett and I have gone through that we are continuing to experience that we just, we don't know where to get the answers. Like just everyone's experience is so unique and there's so many little tiny complicated things when it comes to having these conversations, understanding insurance, figuring out siblings and relationships. I mean, it's really complex. And then you add to that your emotions, grieving the loss of the person you once knew, even if they're still alive, you're still like you're grieving the fact that most of us probably thought of our parents as being immortal, right? They're superheroes. Like, it's just hard to imagine that the fact of the matter is, it's a season that every single person that is listening to my voice is going to go through. And it's going to be a major adjustment. It's going to be a major adjustment for you, your siblings, if you have siblings, your own children, your spouse, your loved ones, and it can really catch you off guard. Having these conversations can be difficult, but armed with insight and education and expertise, you're going to find it doesn't have to be so difficult. It can be much easier. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy, but it can be so much easier approaching this stage, this season, the season where we may have to care for our aging parents. You're going to find it so much easier when you have the tools, the resources that my guest today has outlined in her book. This book was given to me by Kristen, my podcast manager. She gave it to me as a gift. It's called The Fragile Years. And after I read it and then listened to a couple of interviews with my guest today, Amy Cameron O'Rourke, I was like, I have to have her on the show. I absolutely love her. It's no wonder that I later found out that she's from Michigan. Well, I just love you, Michiganders. You're just so down to earth. Amy has been working in the field of aging since high school. She once volunteered in a nursing home in high school, and then after college, she worked for seven years as the activities director in a nursing home and then continuing care retirement communities. After graduate school, she then became an administrator of health services and a licensed nursing home administrator for nearly a decade. She later went on to own and operate the Cameron Group, which is a full-service care management company for more than 20 years. And today, she is currently working as the director of care management and the owner of O'Rourke and Associates. Amy is a recipient of the Entrepreneur of the Year Award. She's a TEDx speaker and the former president of the Aging Life Care Association. In other words, she knows a thing or two about this season. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining me here today. I want to just start by saying thank you for writing such a necessary book. This is literally the book anyone who's starting to see a little bit of decline in their parents, you just you need to buy this because you answer. I mean, there's lots of books about how to deal with Alzheimer's, or how to deal with Parkinson's or how to deal with an aging parent. But you go into so many of the little particulars that are so stressful and you don't realize it until you're in the middle of it. Well, I appreciate those comments and thank you. And I hope it's helpful to you and to others. It's a reference book. It really is. You think that you're not going to be there. And when it comes, it comes fast. Some of the things I wanted to start with, how do I even begin to have some of these conversations with my parent? Because it feels like I'm now kind of being the parent to my parent. So can you start by giving us some insight as to maybe some do's and don'ts when it pertains to like, we have to start talking about this stuff. I know. I know. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And I would want to say I have a personal bias against any kind of role reversal idea that adult children have out there. Sometimes I'll hear people say, I feel like I'm my parent's parent. And they say that because you don't know the new relationship that you're going to have. So you put the only relationship you know on top of this relationship, but it isn't. If you mm. don't, don't would be 
don't talk to your parent as if they're your child. Mm. It will be a recipe for disaster because think about it. If someone's talking to me like I'm a child or my child is talking to me as if they're the adult and I'm the child, it's automatically offensive and it will put me on the defensive and it will get me angry and upset, which is a closed door to communication. Mm. So don't fall into that trap. So what you want to do, and it becomes interesting, is you start asking open-ended questions about people in their world. Like, okay, how would they responded to maybe their friend Walt or maybe their friend Dorothy or somebody in their circle? Something's happened to them. And then ask them open-ended questions. What happened? Where did they go? How did the caregivers go? What did you think? Did you have any thoughts about it? then you can become getting educated. And and when should you start doing it? Way before, you know, if you're one of those people that, you know, can ask when they're in their 50s. I I had a wonderful conversation with a friend of mine who's not even 70 yet. And she's getting into these conversations with her children. She's setting it up with them. Oh, yeah. To say, these are some visions I have for my future. And then listen to them and some of their anxieties and fears. But if you're like, the mass numbers of us who don't plan ahead or get scared or haven't broached the subject, start by asking about people that they've known. And then the other thought that I have is if ask them what their vision is for you when they need help. Oh, that's a great way to frame that. Yeah. What do you picture me doing? What do you picture me? How am I supposed to be in this time in your life? What's the biggest mistake I could ever make and get Mm. them to say it? And then don't judge, don't comment, don't correct. Just let let the information sit out there for you to get uncomfortable enough to sit with that. It's it's like, you know, when your kids get to be 13, 14, 15, and they're they're changing and the old way of telling them <laughs> what to do doesn't work anymore. You know what I mean? Like, you know, totally. <laughs> right, right. So you're you're developing a new relationship and it's more collaborative in nature. Like, how can I be a good partner with you, mom and dad? In previous generations, we used to live very close or even with our parents until they passed. You lived with your parents until you got married, and then eventually they moved in with you. But I think today things are so different, and so many of us live far away from our parents, and we might not even know if what state they're in. You know, you're on the phone with them maybe a couple times a week, maybe once a week. Maybe it's very infrequent. So you don't have a day-to-day sense of, a decline or even a decline in executive function. How do you suggest that person who doesn't have a really close day-to-day, even week-to-week relationship with their parents, how do you suggest they get some insight as to what state they're actually in? So, and and don't parents present really well on the phone when you talk to them (laughs) once a week? (laughs) You know, I'm doing fine. Everything's fine. I'm good. Yes, yes. good. And you know, they haven't had a bath in a week and they're not eating and, you know, but yeah. everything's great. Uh. Everything's fine. So there's a wonderful book called My Mother, Your Mother, and it's written by Dennis McCullough, and I'm sure you know it. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the 72-hour visit. And it is a wonderful, wonderful tip. You just make it, you know, when your parents hit the fragile years and it's somewhere in their 80s and they're a little fragile and they're working slow, you know, once a year or twice a year, you're going to make a 72-hour visit and you're just going to be there. You're not there for any goal. You're not there for any job to do. You're just there to get a sense of how things really are going and how they are doing. So you're not saying, hey, mom, I'm coming. I haven't seen you in a year or two, but I'm going to plan this little visit because I want to make an assessment of how you're aging. You just go. You go. You know, the ones that haven't visited very often, when the child does come visit, the (laughs) client will tell me, they must think I'm going to die because they haven't seen me (laughs) coming. They're coming. They must think things are really bad. So you want to make sure that you're visiting. Zoom is great. I like things. That's a great time. It it really, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for FaceTime. I think you can ask them to move the phone around and see how things are going. But then you do a personal visit. And the other thing I like to do is there's usually somebody in their world that's close to them. Mm -hmm. It might be a neighbor. It might be somebody from their temple. It might be somebody from their choir and get their name and phone number and hire them. Don't Mm -hmm. make it a friend. Just hire them and say to your mom, I'm having somebody that knows you and I'm having them respond to me because if something happens to you, I want to know that I'm going to be called 
And I'm going to want somebody local that can help me know how things are going for you. I don't want to be blindsided if at all possible. One of the things you mentioned in the book is the mistake that many of us make where our pace is 10 times faster than what our parents want. And I, you know, I think about that and how we just want to fix things so that we can move on, right? Like, okay, let's figure out what's going on. Let's fix this. I can see what needs to be done. Here's the change I suggest. Let's do it. That's not very effective. Tell us why that's true. Well, this is an anxiety-ridden experience. <laughs> yes. For, on both ends. On both ends. But everybody has anxiety. And everybody has a fallback mechanism that they do when they're under anxiety. You know, some people shut down. Some people go to sleep. Lots of people try to get control and mm-hmm. they try to move things quickly and get a solution and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and not describing, you know, male versus female, but we all can fall into that trap of let's get a solution. And then if I get the solution in place, the illusion is I'm going to feel less anxious. Right. So tip number one is get help with your anxiety because you're, you're working on a false solution, right? So you just get help with the anxiety because I, I will tell you, and I know you've had this with your father-in-law, it's painful. Mm-hmm. It's painful to watch someone that you know and love or that you know and didn't love or that you had a tough, whatever the relationship is, they're diminishing in front of you. Yeah. They haven't died. They're diminishing and it is a painful thing and it's wrought with uncertainty. And so if you get some emotional support in whatever form you get it, whether it's take a yoga class, whether you go see a therapist, whether you meet a friend for wine, whatever it is that you do, (laughs) keep getting emotional support so that you're not making mistakes with unsupported anxiety. And, you know, children are moving at one pace and a person in the fragile years, they're walking slower, they're talking slower, they're thinking slower. You know, it's even like you leave a message for an older person. You goes, my number is 407-948-9901. Well, they're like, yeah. what? <laughs> you know? Right, right. You want to talk slower, not so slow that it's off-putting, but slower because they can understand they're not, not intelligent and they haven't lost their mind, but they're thinking more slowly. And I think there's a side to all of us where we're, you're just unaware of your age. I say this all the time. I'm like, I just graduated from high school. How did this happen? And I, I'll t- be talking to 20-year-olds and I'm like, well, they're like our age. And they're like looking at me like, our age? You know, we're not the same age. In your mind, you feel like you are the same age. And we have to remember that our parents are probably doing that too. With regard to the anxiety, personal experience, and I wonder if you agree, when it's a married couple and you're caring for one person's parent or both parents, It impacts you both very differently, especially if, in fact, that is your biological parent or the person who raised you. And that was certainly true for us. And I, you know, it's hard on both of us, but yet I I saw that it was a different level of heavy and anxiety for my husband. And it began to really impact our relationship. It started to impact his health tremendously. And so I just encouraged him to see a therapist because I knew he wanted to solve a problem that we couldn't solve. You know, we can't make Alzheimer's go away. And that gave him so much relief. So I have to, you know, agree with you there. It's really recommended because there's so many professionals that, especially because this is so common, actually specialize in this. That's right. And I applaud you for getting your husband into counseling. My husband would go in a minute, you know, if it was recommended to him. And it, it is so helpful because you feel heard and seen And then you can process that. And then the time that you spend with your parent is not complicated or layered with all that baggage on top of it. You can create more meaningful moments with them because you're not bringing all that unprocessed grief into the time that you have with them. Yeah. You talk about having these conversations with our parents in the right way, at the right pace, because communication is so about timing and circumstance and the place that somebody's at when we have these conversations so that they're open to it and they don't feel defensive or attacked or out of control. But when it comes to speaking about our parents' wishes for the end of their life, I've got a two-part question. The first one is, what if we don't necessarily agree with what it is they want for the end of their life? It's a hard one. So I think the first thing that comes to mind is 
you want to look at the pattern that they've established. Let me say first, when my dad had surgery and against medical advice. What do you mean by that against medical advice? His, well, the heart surgeon, the cardiologist wanted to replace the valve, but all his other doctors said, this is the beginning of the end, Dave. If you have this surgery, it's the beginning of the end. Okay. And you're, you're setting yourself up. So he, he did that and I was really against it. And it was an end of life decision. The machines, that's almost the easy part. Feeding tube, people are pretty clear about not wanting a feeding tube. Don't hook me up to a machine, but surgery when you're fragile those are the harder ones where you think, you know, if you have the surgery, you don't know how anesthesia is going to affect the brain. Mm-hmm. And after surgery, somebody in their mid eighties, they frequently don't recover, you know, the hip fracture, they don't recover to the level of function that they had before. So what I would say to your audience is, at the end of life, those decisions are almost easier than when you're in the fragile years and they're in the hospital and the hospital is wanting to do all these tests. Then the question I would want the audience to ask is, if I won't do the procedure that is a result of the test, then don't do the test. You know, the statistics are alarming of the number of older adults that end up in the hospital that die in the hospital and don't want to die in the hospital. Uh. So the harder work is really when your parents are getting in the acute care system, you're not ready to let them go, you know, and they don't want to have any more tests or procedures done and you still are ready to fight. You talk about the over medicating of our seniors and the over treatment and hospitalization of them. Yeah. And I'm I'm so glad that you bring awareness to that because it's Everything else is corrupt, of course, and this is such a huge percentage now of our our population and continuing to grow. So it therefore, is. it turns into a huge financial opportunity for these organizations, companies, medical insurance, all of it. Right. It's a capitalized system. Our healthcare is capitalized. So the more is done, the more money is made. People are scared in the hospital and the doctor in a white coat is saying, do this thing. And you say no. I want you to have some people behind you saying, remember, this is what your mom said. Remember, this is what your dad Mm, said. Yeah. Remember, it's okay to say no. It's okay to say, I want to go home. It's okay to say, I want to go home and not go to rehab. Get your therapy at home. You know, if I, if I were to tell, you know, your audience, anything is I'd hire a care manager in a minute just to get some advice on the systems that you're in the middle of to educate yourselves on how to protect your your parent when they're in the middle of these systems so that you can help your parent get the end of life that they want. Where do we find a care manager? Aginglifecare.org. And we can find a care manager who specializes in our specific situation? If you look at the credentials, most care managers are either nurses or social workers. So if you have a primary medical issue, you can look at their background and look at what they specialize in and call them and get an idea of all the work that they've done in what area and find somebody that meets your needs. Even if you can only afford to pay for a couple of hours, it's the best money to be spent because then you're educated and you've got like a coach on the sidelines yeah. to say, okay, now she's in the nursing home and they're trying to kick her out and they haven't given me any notice. What do I do? What do I say? Yeah. And you get help with the language. I call it professional courage. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. Professional courage is such a great way to frame it too, because you have these thoughts and you you begin to question yourself like, what does that make me a bad daughter if I am recommending that my father not have this hip replacement? Does this mean that I'm cold and uncaring if I think that this is the best option based on what they want for the end of their life? I know. I remember my dad was out in the parking lot of his assisted living facility at 530 in the morning waiting for me to pick him up. And I was picking up at 530 that night. And you're nodding Ooh. your head like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. And they called me and security brought him in and the nurse called and they wanted to move him in the memory unit, in the locked Mm -hmm. unit. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, he, I'm going to get him a little clock that reads AM and PM. And, and she said, don't you care about your father's safety? And I said, well, I was raised Catholic and I'm not sure I do guilt anymore in that way. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love it. You know, yeah. I think that I'm a really good daughter who's thinking the best thing for her dad. So I don't think you can say those things to me and we're not going to put them in the lock board. We're going to let him. And the AM PM clock worked. And, you know, he called me that afternoon. And he said, I got brought in by the police today. He remembered. <laughs> he remembered. <laughs> That's beautiful. You know, yeah. let's stay there for a second on the guilt. It's huge. And you reach out to your friends and family members when you're going through something like this because it's just none of us have ever been through until we're through it. And you hear things People will make comments meaning very well, but it can feel so judgmental and it can cloud your own judgment and it can impact the decisions that you're making as a family that I personally believe need to be your decisions based on your own criteria. So can you speak for a moment to those people who are are struggling because they're doing things right now because they once said they would do it or because they have this guilt that this is the, if I don't do this, I'm a bad person. Or if I do do this, I'm a bad person. It is fraught with guilt, isn't it? You take care of your parents and you never feel like you're doing the right thing. You're not doing enough. You're doing too much. You're doing, so it's fraught with guilt. So one thing that I recommend is try not to talk to anybody who hasn't been there before. We're going to take a quick break from what is a pretty heavy topic. As our guest today, Amy, suggested Going to our friends with something that they just can't relate to isn't the best place. And sometimes when you're in the middle of something like this or any family matter, going to other family members can make it like a hundred times worse. So what do you do? You know, I'm a big advocate of going to therapy, but it's not always accessible for everybody. And that is one of the reasons why I'm really happy to have the sponsorship of Talkspace, because Talkspace is a place where you can find a licensed therapist, a licensed therapist who specializes in whatever it is you're going through, somebody who is trained and knows specifically how to help you, what to say, and more importantly, to give you the support that you need when you're going through something like this. We don't have to go through these kinds of things by ourselves. And again, friends and family might not be the right route. Consider a professional, consider a lesser expensive alternative to in-person therapy, and that's Talkspace because your mental health is so important. So I wanna encourage you to just check it out. Go to Talkspace.com, and when you enter the code Shaleem when you sign up, you're gonna get $100 off your first month. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform. They have thousands of licensed therapists that are available that can match whatever it is you need. Lots of different specialties, everything from anxiety and depression, relationships, you name it. Talkspace allows you to make this work for you around your schedule when it's convenient for you. You can do live video sessions. You can do unlimited messaging with your dedicated therapist. And again, it's therapy at a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy, 24-7, five days a week. To take advantage of the special, go to Talkspace.com or you can just download the app. Just don't forget that when you sign up or if you do sign up, enter the code Shaleen because that's what's going to get you $100 off your first month. Yes, that's so huge. Yeah. And they can't help it and they're helpless. And they want to solve it. it and they come up with these ideas where you're like, oh. Ideas you think, oh, oh. So don't set yourself up for failure and have expectations on somebody that's really never been there before. And if you are going to talk to somebody that's never been there before, tell them ahead of time what you want. Mm. Don't solve anything. I need to Just vent. Yeah. I yeah. need a listener. I got to get this all out. So once it's out and you've got it out in the light of day, sometimes there's relief just in verbalizing it mm -hmm. and it will come back. So keep your expectations with you wake up the next morning, you might feel a little better and you get the day going and then you feel guilty again. Then you got to ask for support again. It's not a one and done. It's a, a continual journey. It's like you've got to set yourself for the lifestyle that you're in and put all these things into place that you need for the entire journey, which is who are the couple friends that you're going to be talking to? What support group are you going to go to? What therapist are you going to pick? What yoga class are you going to go to? What outlet are you going to have? You know, these things that you're, it's all self-care with the idea that I never felt like I was in the right place at the right time with either my mom or my dad. If I wow. was up, if I was up in Michigan, I felt like I should be back at work. If I was at work, I felt like I should be with them. And then I'd get a little relief and then I'd put one foot in front of the other again. So I had to realize that 
that feelings would come and go. And you're someone who would be more prepared than anyone because you've been doing this for how many years? 40. A long time. Which is so reassuring and so normalizing to know that someone who studies this, someone who's been doing this all of your adult life, even still, you get there and you question yourself and you wonder if you're doing the right thing and you wonder if you're doing enough and you still have those feelings of guilt. And they're heavy. I've heard people write to me and say, I feel so guilty, but every night I pray that my father will pass away in his sleep or I just pray that they would just die and be out of their pain. And there's so much guilt around that. There is. And I think verbalizing it, I've heard people say that. And I've said that out loud about my father and my mother. And I've had clients say it to me. And it's so normal. It's so normal. And Mm -hmm. part of it is that you do want them to have some peace from their suffering. Mm -hmm. And the other part is that you're tired and you don't know if you can do it one more day. So true. It's crazy how exhausting it is. You know, and when Bob was living with us, we weren't doing things for him in a physical way. We didn't have to lift him. There's more to do, obviously, but it physically it wasn't taxing, but yet I was never so exhausted because it does drain you emotionally. It's like having a toddler who uh, can get in a lot of trouble and the world doesn't know that they're a toddler, you know? <laughs> right, right. And it's a kind of fatigue that is unique to itself. It's I mean, I played with toddlers, I've nieces and nephews, and I've had that kind of exhaustion, but the fatigue of taking care of a parent and you wake up tired. Yeah. You you wake up tired and it's from worry. Mm. Worry and almost, I call it like a living grief. You know, you're grieving the loss of who they were. You know that they're, they're not that same person, depending on what stage that they're in. And so you're grieving and worrying at the same time. That's right. That's right. And then if you're getting the right emotional support, then you can be with them in those crazy little moments that might have stressed you out had you not verbalized how stressed out you were to a friend before you went Mm -hmm. to visit. You know, how many times people have lashed out at their parent and they're like, why did I lash out like that? Well, join the ranks of everybody. I mean, you get tired and you lash out in anger. And then, but then if you've gotten some relief to your emotional load, Then when your dad's wandering outside, wondering where the World War II bombers are because he was, you know, he's back in World War II, you can join him in that delusion Mm -hmm. and have fun with it rather than, oh, oh, my God, I cannot believe he's (laughs) saying this. (laughs) I'm laughing because we live at the beach and there's certain times when the tide will wash rocks up onto the sand into little piles and every time and there'd be hundreds of these little piles every time bob would say you i don't want you to see this but i need to tell you there's dead bodies all over the beach again and sometimes he (laughs) would say there were dead horses sometimes there were dead dogs and it's so hard to keep a straight face but if it weren't for those hysterical moments you'd end up crying that's right you know a, a really unique situation, but not that uncommon, is one where there is a parent who is in rapid decline and they have a caregiver, whether it's their spouse or a sibling who doesn't see the problem and doesn't understand like how incredibly unhealthy their relationship is, isn't giving them the help that they need, giving them the care that they need. And so there almost needs to be this intervention with the person who's living with them. And that person is of sound mind. That is a really tricky situation. What advice do you have for people who are in that situation? So it it is common. I would say that every marriage is a relationship that is sacred. And sometimes any intervention and any communicating that you do doesn't work. They got to have a crisis. So everyone's afraid that a crisis is going to happen. And sometimes that's not preventable. Sometimes you have to wait until that crisis happens. Okay. So now to prevent it, what I try to do is get the the wife or the husband or the caregiver out away from their spouse, having a meal, taking a walk, get them out of the situation and then have the person that seems to have the most positive effect on them. Okay. Might be a friend, might be a child, might be a a relative. You might hire a professional. You might hire a care manager to come in and help run some interference. And then 
start with something really, really small. Sometimes they want to hire eight hours a day and you need a day break and you need to go to the spa and you need these big and they like, no, 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 no. I met with a woman a couple of weeks ago and we just added two hours of caregiving a week so that she could go get her nails done. Mm-hmm. And that she said, if I can just be in the car and drive to get my, now I know that the, her daughter wanted more, but I felt proud and it was a beginning because she just didn't want to leave them. Yeah. So you want to, you want to start small. And it took me a year to get one woman to take a vacation. Mm. She'd been doing 24 seven care for her husband with Alzheimer's. Once she got away, she was a totally different person, but it took us a year to get there. Do you find that sometimes there is a partner or spouse who becomes resentful or angry and doesn't want anything to do with their spouse when there is this significant change? I've had more experience where they love them so much and they don't want to let them go. And then Mm -hmm. it's almost easier when they don't want to have anything because they're really clear. They're not, I've had clients say, I'm not a caregiver. I'm not going to caregiver them. I don't like it. It scares me. I'm not good at it Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. It's almost easier than to arrange care for the person Mm -hmm. that needs it because they are done. Yeah. And it tends to be the oldest daughter who is the caregiver or the one who steps up and is looking into insurance and what type of coverage do we have and what type of care can we afford and being the mediator between mom and dad. And then there's uh, sometimes a sibling who wants nothing to do with it. And then it impacts their relationship. Any advice there to help navigate that really, you know, the situation where I almost think caregiving or Alzheimer's can impact everyone's relationships? It does impact everybody's relationship and everybody approaches an aging parent in a different way with your own, what needs you didn't get as a child. And Mm. it all kind of comes to bear when, when mom or dad needs help. So if, if you're the one that's got the job, you know, then anything that you are doing that can be given to someone, like maybe some of the insurance work can be given to the long distance relative who likes to Monday morning quarterback from, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, the long distance relative has strong opinions about what the local child should be doing. You know? Always, <laughs> always, always, yeah. always. So maybe you want to divvy up some of the jobs. Maybe if you're the one that's in the trenches, maybe you can have one of them come down and spend a long weekend so that you can get away. My advice always to my audience was to have zero expectations. You just, you're going to be disappointed with just about any expectation you have. If you're the caregiver and you just have to remember, this is my advice, that you're two different people. You can handle different things. God places more on other people's plates because he knows that you can handle it. And we make a decision to do things. And some people make a decision not to do things. And it's difficult not to judge but it doesn't make ever make us happier or bring us closer together when we do judge and allow resentment to build. Because, man, if you're keeping score, you will be one very unhappy sibling. It's so true. It's so true. I'm, I'm one of six, and mm-hmm. there are probably six different versions of my parents getting older. And I think, I you know, what you said about not having any expectations could be really extrapolated to every situation you're ever in. The lower they are, the happier you are. <laughs> You know, friendships, children, exactly. And, and, you know, if you don't have siblings that are going to be participating, maybe you hire some of it out. I had one screaming daughter and she was screaming about the sister that didn't want to do anything. And there were funds to pay somebody to do what she was doing. Yeah. So I said, how how would you feel if you just wrote a check to somebody and they took them to the doctor and you didn't have to take time off work? You know, like maybe it doesn't always work, but maybe you should. Because don't you know when you're in the middle of it and you're just buckling down and then someone reaches out to help and you're like, no, no, I got this. Yeah. And you really could let someone help you. So there might be another creative way to get the help you need. I know for myself that the more tired I am, the more I take on. It makes no sense. Mm. I think we have to be honest with ourselves and realize you're not going to get credit for this. There will not be an award ceremony. You're not going to get an adequate thank you. You're not going to get your time back, your life back, your health back, your your body back, none of those things. So you better be doing it for all the right reasons or it's going to be a really long, hard journey. Yeah. 
What I'll tell you, you will get is, you know, I still walk into the grocery store and I get a warm memory of being there with my father in the electric wheelchair, spending 45 minutes in the grocery store, wandering around, talking to people, (laughs) you know, I have some of those memories that that are are mine and Mm -hmm. I, I know that I have them. My heart feels full because of it. Mm. We documented so much of our journey. Yeah, I, I, I filmed a lot of it. I, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of us with my father-in-law. And like my husband has said, you know, my dad never said, I love you until he had Alzheimer's. He never, mm. he, he was never sweet and soft and funny in the way that he was. And he said, how, as hard as it was, how many people get to spend like a year every single day with their parent while they're still physically able to do things like mentally he might not have been there but physically he was still we were still going on bike rides with him he had this insane physical coordination that most people with alzheimer's do not have that made it like really fun to do a lot of things that we otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to do but i do know for so many it is this i guess it's a societal belief that you know, if you put your family member in a nursing home, that means that you don't care about them and you're asking someone else to take care of them. It's such a selfish thing to do. How do you address that comment? I don't have any judgment. And I've probably had just enough experience where I've seen people move into communities and they're happier, especially with Mm. memory care. Sometimes, you know, don't ever put me in a nursing home or don't ever put me in the facility. And I've seen them move into a community and they're actually more stable. They're less anxious. They're more involved and they actually are better off. And I've had some people say to me over the years that they feel safer. This is the older person. They feel safer with caregivers around who know what they're doing Now, I know Mm -hmm. you can badmouth nursing homes and you can say you can't get good care, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you can, you can, you can. Absolutely. And I've watched caregivers give a bath and it's amazing when you watch them do all the techniques they have. The older person can relax because they know the person knows what they're doing. Yes. And they're not panicked that maybe the daughter that's trying to give her mom a bath doesn't know what she's doing and the mom's terrorized. And so, yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes the financial reality, if you have children or you have your own life, you can't bankrupt your life and your children's life to take care of your parents. So you have tough decisions to make that if I had children, I would be making it my children first and then my parents. But I try to be mindful of having some time and attention for both. But like you said earlier, you know, my husband and I decided when we were going to take care of my dad, that if it affected our marriage, we were going to take a pause, Mm -hmm. that our marriage was the most important thing. And we were Mm going to try to take care of my dad. Yeah. So I don't have a negative idea about facilities. I think right now with COVID, it's tricky, but there's ways to Mm -hmm. navigate it. You, if you learn about the system and you know how to navigate it and you make friends with the caregivers and become part of their lives. I've watched my sister-in-law take care of her mother in a nursing home in Georgia for seven years, seven years. And I I think she's lasted this long because it's a family over there. It's rural Georgia and they know Reggie, my sister-in-law, and they know her mother. And it's been a very rewarding experience for her and for her mom. I love that you, at the end of every chapter, you have a checklist. And that's why I say that, first of all, Thank you for a skinny book. (laughs) And you have all these incredible checklists that I think people don't even know to ask. They don't know to ask these questions. In our own situation, my mother-in-law was involved in the process and, you know, she had selected a care facility for him without the checklist and it was the wrong facility. And I hadn't seen you reference a place for mom but they were a wonderful resource for us in just walking me through all of the things I knew that he needed and what type of facility was going to be the best fit for him. And of course, that's tricky, right? Because, well, in fact, they were able to help us like understand like based on how much care 
we could afford. It was just a, it was a great resource. So I'm not sure what your thoughts are on a place for mom. Well, I would say placement specialists, that's the profession. And there are placement companies all across the country. And mm-hmm. they find assisted living communities for consumers. And how to decide is how many communities are in there under contract with them because they get paid by the facilities. So whoever you're going to hire to help you with that, it's a wonderful profession and they do a wonderful job, but you want to make sure that you don't pick a placement company with three people under contract because you'll be limited Mm -hmm. to. So, so the tip that I would give is if you're going to use a placement company, find out how many facilities are under contract. And there are also a place for mom. I know them, they're national. There's a lot to be said also for local placement companies that have a person locally that may or may not know the area better than maybe a national company. So I think both are valid and it's to be educated as to who knows your area the best. When you go to a hotel, the concierge is going to recommend in the sa- much the same way the five restaurants that he gets a kickback from. And this is obviously going to happen when it comes to contractors and, and placement. Are there contractors or independent consultants that you can hire who are paid by the family as opposed to the facility so that you know you're getting an unbiased recommendation? So you're very smart to ask that question. So I'm a care manager and you have a care manager. And I'll say to families... The placement specialist won't cost you any money. Tell me who they're recommending and I'll give you, Mm. I'll let you know what I think. Or, and I've had families say, you know what? I don't want a placement company. I want to pay you by the hour to find a place for my mother. Okay. So we give them both options so that they can make, or, or a hybrid of the two. So smart. Yeah, this is great. So many people don't know these things and I, you can just accidentally make the worst decisions and it can cost you so much money. It could cost a life. And at a time when you're not making the best decisions, it feels so overwhelming when you're in the middle of it. So to think about and hear these things in advance is putting power back in your hands. I think that one of the most challenging dilemmas, I don't even know what you want to call it, predicaments that we're in right now, and this is, I'm going to be really frank, my father-in-law was, you know, as a football coach, he was the leader. He was the one who told everyone else what to do. His father died of Alzheimer's. And he always told us, if when it's my time, take me out back and put a gun to my head. I don't want to live like that. If I don't know who everyone is, if I, you know, any of these things, then just kill me. Those literally were his wishes. He's healthy as an ox, but has no idea, you know, obviously where he's at or what, what's going on. And that's the part that kills us every single day because it feels like we are have stripped him of his dignity and that we aren't honoring his wishes. But what else could we do? I mean, those would be my dying wishes too. <laughs> but I mean, other than having a pact with a best friend to come in with a cyanide pill, what am I going to tell my kids? And we have to have start having these conversations about end of life. What I would tell you is, yeah, it's gut wrenching. Mm-hmm. What I would say is, you know, right now he's in a community and he's active and he's involved and he's getting more and more. So you're, you would be the one that I would say, keep him out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And if he's got a cardiovascular problem and somebody says something about putting a pacemaker in, don't do that. Like be yeah. very, very careful with any kind of medical treatment. And if you have to, and I'll say this to you directly into your audience, put him on hospice so that you can prevent any acute care intervention so that you can honor his wishes. Okay. And and maybe it's not for today, but I would bring up hospice if there were medical issues that were coming up that you said, oh, no, 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 we cannot go down this road. Hospice will shut all that down. Mm, wow. Right. Okay. okay, that's great. That's wonderful to know. I think people have a misconception about hospice. I think they do. I think what hospice, you know, our our country needs a a palliative care program. I call it the leave me alone program. You know, I'm not dying. You know, (laughs) just leave me alone. You know what I mean? I don't want to, if I'm not eating, don't make me eat. If I'm in a facility, don't give me medicine to increase my appetite because some federal law says you have to make sure that I'm eating and gaining weight. You know, when I'm dying, I'm not gaining weight and I'm not wanting to eat. I'm sleeping. I'm not eating. I'm not drinking. So leave me alone. Just like our pets. Right. 
it's fascinating because that is the conversation when you have an older pet and you're struggling with that decision. That's what your friends and community will tell you like, oh, you don't want the dog to suffer when they stop eating, when they stop drinking, then, then you know it's time. Right. And we put dogs down. And I, you know, I don't want to make that analogy, but like literally that is the end of life. You stop eating, you stop drinking, right. you stop, and you start slowing down. And we're, I guess it's for our own benefit. We want to prolong life. Right. As long as possible. And so the, the facility will need your, your dad-in-law and send him to the emergency room because of some perceived and just say, no, he's going on hospice. Because mm, it's the okay. only way in our country to stop that process. We don't have a, another avenue, which I would want to have to say, we're just doing comfort measures. He's not dying, but we're just yeah. doing comfort measures. We don't want any extraordinary medical care. If, if he's not putting the food in his mouth, that's okay. But, you know, I, an older person will show you exactly when they're ready. Mm-hmm. They communicate in a nonverbal way what they're ready for. They're sleeping more. Okay, let them sleep. Yeah. We're so accustomed to saying like, no, 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 keep living, you know, reinvigorate their quality of life, <laughs> but they're, they've had their quality of life. They've had their quality of life and we're scared and nobody yes. likes to talk about death. Right. So we're scared as a, as a society yeah, And it's a scary thing unless you've been through it and watched it. And I have, it's a beautiful thing to see. Mm. Everybody has that internal will to live and they make a decision. They're ready to go. And you watch all the nonverbal things they do. And there's a peace wow. that passes over. That's a beautiful thing. And there's no guilt because you watch them and they're ready yeah. And it's a beautiful thing to watch when you can let go and let that be what's happening. One of the other questions that just tugs at my heart strings are the people who had a really horrific experience with their parents, like they really didn't deserve to be called parents. They just gave birth to them and maybe they were abusive or incredibly toxic, or maybe there's a point in their life where they just stopped talking as adults and now they maybe they're the only sibling and they have this Am I supposed to step in? How do we make that decision if we're struggling with it? I know for some people, they're not struggling with it. You know, they've they've got that boundary and they're like, person gave birth to me, but no, I'm not going to step in. I I just don't care about this person. And I don't have any judgment for that. But for the person who is struggling with that decision, like wants to give them maybe a chance to apologize or to, to reconnect how do they make the decision? Like, do I step in now or do I just continue living my life? Yeah, I, I have a lot of empathy for these questions. So I like to take and recommend that you take the end and process the end like, okay. like this. If, if mom dies, am I going to be okay with what I did or didn't do? That's the guiding light. How, you know, I was estranged from my father. I made a decision to make a decision. And that's really, for me, what I would want any adult child to do is to mm-hmm. be okay with the decision that you've made. And I've watched friends who have said, you know what, I'm not going to be involved. And they, I have one friend who went into counseling and got to decide that she was not going to be a part of her mother's life. And she's okay with that. But I liked and respected what the process she put herself through to decide what she was going to do. Sometimes you have to try it on. You have to. That's a great point. Sometimes, sometimes you have to you try, try it, it on. on and see how it goes. And your instincts or your insides, you know, if you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're like all torqued up and all racked out and it's not working, oh my God. And it's information for you to know I probably need to adjust myself here. And then make sure, and I can't stress this enough, I really appreciate people who process with others what they're going through, whether it's Mm. a sibling, whether it's a friend, whether it's in a support group. A podcast. A podcast. (laughs) This has been my therapy. I I love my lifers so much because they have have helped me through this. They, They don't even know how much having this outlet has given me so much insight. I'm glad you said that so that you, you have an outlet, whatever that outlet is, so that as you're making the decision, you've got 
confirmation. And don't all of us need that? Like, no, you need someone to say, you know, I heard you say this. Is that what you meant? How are you feeling to help you process it? And isn't that the reason we're all like on the earth is to kind of help each other, like connect and I think so. You're fantastic. My audience knows that I I don't bring authors on who have a best-selling book filled with hyperbole. I bring authors on who actually say, here's a blueprint. Here's what to do. You're not alone. You're not broken. You're not crazy. And and here's some options. You give so many options and you just spell out so many things that you would have no idea where to get the answers if it weren't for this book. So I just want to recommend to anyone who has a, a parent who's of a certain age And even if they're not there yet, buy the book. If you've got someone who's going through it and you don't know how to help them, buy them this book and just send it to them. Coming from someone who who feels like she's a know-it-all about this area, I still learned so much from your book. So Amy, thank you so much for writing it. Thank you for having me. And where can people get in touch with you? You can get in touch with me at agingexpert.com. Agingexpert.com. Agingexpert.com and at aworkinassociates.com. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much for being here. We appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate you too. Take care. If you enjoyed this show, please don't forget to make sure you are subscribed and following along. The Shaleen Show is available on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and most every podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star review and tell us specifically what you enjoyed. We'd love to know. The Shaleen Show is released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. For Tuesdays and Thursdays, be sure to follow and subscribe to Shaleen's other podcast, Build Your Tribe, which she co-hosts with her son, Brock Johnson. It's all about business, social media, and marketing, and devoted to helping you make more money and live more life. Links to anything referenced in today's episode, as well as show sponsors and other podcasts, can be found below in our show notes.